Today is Tuesday, June 14th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Amnesty International accuses Russia of war crimes and Ukraine of violating humanitarian law as the war grinds on. We found that Russian forces in their relentless shelling of Kharkiv have carried out indiscriminate strikes that have killed hundreds of people and injured thousands. UN rights chief declined second term after criticism over China visit. I'm not a young woman anymore, and after a long and rich career, I want to go back to my country, to my family. So being so many years minister, president, UN women, president, high commissioner, I think it's time. It's time to go back. And authorities say suspected Islamic extremists have killed at least 55 people in northern Burkina Faso. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Amnesty International research consultant Jean-Baptiste Galopin says the group's 14-day investigation found that Russia's relentless shelling of the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv with cluster munitions and scattered landmines amounts to war crimes that indiscriminately killed hundreds of civilians. He also says that Ukrainian forces had violated international humanitarian law by positioning artillery near residential buildings attracting Russian fire. Russia's defense ministry did not respond to a Reuters request for comments on the amnesty report. In the past, Russia has denied targeting civilians and accused Ukraine of faking evidence of war crimes. Ukraine's defense ministry has not commented on the report. Amnesty International Research Consultant Jean-Baptiste Galopin. We found that Russian forces in their relentless shelling of Kharkiv have carried out indiscriminate strikes that have killed hundreds of people and injured thousands. Many of these strikes were launched using cluster munitions, which are widely banned, as well as other indiscriminate weapons, such as artillery shells and rockets and scatterable landmines, which are indiscriminate when used in urban areas. And such indiscriminate attacks, when they result in civilian death and injuries, as well as the destruction of civilian objects, are war crimes. You know, we found seven instances of cluster munitions being used on populated areas of Kharkiv. These attacks were devastating. In one instance, for instance, on Mira Street in Kharkiv, nine people were killed and 35 people were injured when cluster munitions fell onto a playground where families were gathered with their children. What we found in the context of this report was that Ukrainian forces often operated in residential neighborhoods, you know, positioning, for instance, pieces of artillery uh, in close proximity to residential buildings, and that in doing so, they violated international humanitarian law and they attracted Russian fire and therefore endangering uh, civilians. I think it's, it's very important for this report to come out now to put a building block on the justice process. That's Amnesty International Research Consultant Jean-Baptiste Galopin. Ukraine authorities have promised to restore everything the Russians have destroyed. But many residents and waiting. Lysia Bakalets has the story narrated by Anna Rice. Ukrainian authorities have promised to restore all the damaged residential buildings and already allotted 1 billion hryvna, nearly 34 million U.S. dollars for that purpose. 
According to the Kiev School of Economics, it's going to cost upwards of $39 billion to restore the damage to residential buildings in Ukraine. But many here say they can't wait for that and have started doing some of the rebuilding work themselves. A volunteer rebuilding battalion called Dobrabat is helping. Applications can be left on the Dobrabat website. There is a special form for volunteers who put in the help they can offer. Long-time construction worker Vadim Lavrik has put together a special team in the Sumi region. In the first 26 hours, more than 30 volunteers signed up. Young women help us as well. One of them is probably 21. She hardly weighs more than 50 kilos. I often tell her, take just one brick at a time. They're too heavy for you. Another woman who helps us is an industrial engineer. Very different people, but all are incredibly talented. So far, more than 27,000 people have volunteered to help. At the moment, the Brabat is operating in the Kiev, Chernihiv, and Sumy regions. Volunteers work in teams a few days a week. Volunteers mostly either clear debris or restore residential buildings. While there is no shortage of volunteers, there is a shortage of materials and gas. That's why the Brabat members are on the constant lookout for sponsors and funds. Banks and IT companies are helping as well. The Brabat founders are creating a map with all the damaged buildings on it and looking for sponsors for each project. The Dabrabat founders plan to add more rebuilding battalions in the Kharkiv and Mykolaiv regions of Ukraine. Falesia Bakalets, NRI's News. UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet says she will step down as High Commissioner when her term ends in late August. She disclosed this information without a detailed explanation at the opening of the UN Human Rights Council 5th session. Lisa Schneider reports for VOA from Geneva. Following her review of global human rights developments to the Council, Bachelet told journalists in Geneva that she was retiring for personal reasons. She said her decision has nothing to do with criticisms over a recent trip to China. Human rights activists have criticized her for failing to condemn Beijing's forced incarceration of nearly two million Uyghurs in Xinjiang during her visit. Bachelet told the media that she had informed UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres two months before she went to China that she would not be seeking a second term. He told me he would love me to continue, but I explained to him that because of personal reasons, I need to, after... I'm not a young woman anymore, and after a long and rich career, I want to go back to my country, to my family. After being so many years minister, president, UN women, president, high commissioner, I think it's time. It's time to go back. Previously, in her speech to the council, Bachelet addressed the barrage of criticism leveled at her. Bachelet said she had discussed specific human rights concerns with senior officials in China. These included government policies for countering terrorism, the protection of the rights of ethnic and religious minorities, and legal protection for women. I also raised concern regarding the human rights situation of the Uyghur and other predominantly Muslim minorities in Xinjiang, including broad arbitrary detention and patterns of abuse both in the BETC system and in other detention facilities. My office assessment of the human rights situation in Xinjiang is being updated. I will be shared 
It will be shared with the government for factual comment before publication. One critic was Rushan Abbas, founder and executive director of the Washington-based organization Campaign for Uyghurs. Abbas recently said Bachelet made a mockery of the UN Human Rights Office by adopting Beijing's narrative. He called for her to resign, saying in a tweet she neglects her mandate and the UN's founding principles. Human rights activists have repeatedly demanded that Bachelet release her long-awaited report on China's human rights abuses. The High Commissioner said the report would be issued before she left office. Beijing denies the accusations of rights abuses. In her lengthy presentation to the Council, the High Commissioner reported widespread violations were destroying and impoverishing the lives of countless millions of people in all regions of the world. She focused on the war in Ukraine, which she said continued to destroy the lives of many, causing havoc and destruction. She noted the horrors inflicted on the civilian population would leave an indelible mark for generations to come. She condemned Russia, which invaded Ukraine on February 24th, for arbitrarily arresting large numbers of anti-war protesters. She called the increase in censorship and restrictions on independent Russian media regrettable. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. A bipartisan group of senators continued to hammer out the outlines of a gun violence bill, raising hopes of addressing the rash of gun violence in the United States. The proposal falls far short of tougher steps long sought by President Joe Biden and many Democrats. Even so, Biden embraced the deal, an enactment will signal a significant turnaround after years of stalemate in Congress. Twenty senators, including ten Republicans, are calling for passage. That's potentially crucial because at least ten GOP votes will be needed in the Senate. For more on the effort and when that bill might get to the table of the president and sign into law, I spoke with VOA's congressional correspondent, Catherine Gibson. Keyword in there is framework, and that means that they don't have a bill, they don't have actual language, the really fine details that lawmakers negotiate and talk about. All they have is the big picture so far, but that is still a big deal. That is something, because in the seven years I've covered Capitol Hill, I have covered the aftermath of numerous mass shootings, and this is the very first time that a bipartisan group of senators has reached an agreement. Now, timing is everything up on Capitol Hill. They have two weeks before they go on a recess for the July 4th Independence Day holiday. They really need to work out the language of this bill before they go out of town, before they go on recess, or like you said, they could once again lose the momentum on this deal. The House, on its own, took up and passed what they call a comprehensive gun bill. Is this a continuation of that, or the Senate is starting from scratch? Yes and no. So the House, there are some elements of the House legislation in this framework agreement between U.S. senators, but they are really starting from scratch, in a sense, over on their side, because there is such a narrow Democratic majority over in the U.S. Senate. Their Vice President Kamala Harris is the tie-breaking vote to pass legislation. And there's kind of a unique procedural thing in the U.S. Senate that means in order to even debate a bill, they need to reach 60 votes, which means they need to have the agreement of at least 10 Republican senators. The legislation that passed the U.S. House recently 
is far, far too progressive for Republican senators to agree to. So what they're doing here is taking pieces of that House legislation and figuring out the elements that they can all agree on. Like everything else in Washington, there are those who support and there are those who do not support. There are those who say this does not go far enough based on the history of uh, mass shootings in the United States. How will this play into the decision of the senators from both sides of the aisle? This is something. This is, at the very least, a bipartisan agreement that eventually could be passed. We know that. But for many people, this doesn't go far enough. We know, for example, that there was no agreement to raise the minimum age for owning an assault weapon to age 21 from age 18. There were no big background, expanded background check laws that are in this framework agreement. Those are a lot of things that people wanted to see happen in the wake of the Texas mass shooting. But then again, maybe this is a starting point. You at least want to see senators talking to each other, agreeing with each other, passing something. So it's a little bit of a mixed blessing. That's VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson speaking with me from Washington, D.C. In other news, authorities say gunmen have killed at least 55 people in northern Burkina Faso. The latest attack amid mounting violence blamed on Islamic extremists. Government spokesman Wendo Kony, Joel Lionel Belgo, said the suspected militants targeted civilians over the weekend in the Sahel region, Seno province. Nearly 5,000 people have died over the past two years in Burkina Faso because of violence blamed on Islamic extremists. Another 2 million people have fled their homes, deepening the country's humanitarian crisis. While no group claimed this weekend's attack, conflict analysts say it was likely carried out by the Islamic State group. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chini Rofo in Washington. Australia's Defense Minister Richard Miles met his Chinese counterpart, General Wei Fei, on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Security Summit in Singapore during the weekend. After the breakthrough meeting, a former spy chief says Australia has, quote, a long way to go, unquote, to repair relations with China. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Analysts say that the meeting of Australian and Chinese defence ministers in Singapore on Sunday could be the start of better diplomatic relations. Relations between the two nations have deteriorated in recent years to such an extent that ministerial dialogue between the Indo-Pacific nations ceased more than two years ago. There were allegations of Chinese interference in Australian politics and cyber espionage. The detention of Australian citizens in China was also a source of friction, as was Canberra's decision on national security grounds to ban Chinese company Huawei from its 5G telecommunication system. Then there was friction over the pandemic. In 2020, Australia's former Prime Minister Scott Morrison said there should be an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 that was first detected in China. It angered Beijing, which saw it as a direct criticism of its handling of the virus. Various trade sanctions followed on a range of Australian exports, including farming goods, wine and coal. Former Director General of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation Dennis Richardson 
told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that the recently elected centre-left government in Canberra is trying to reset bilateral relations with China after years of animosity. They don't carry the baggage of the last 10 years, and that's not a criticism of the previous government, but they don't carry the baggage of the differences in respect of the pandemic. They don't carry the baggage of ministers incessantly talking about the potential for conflict with China. Australian Defence Minister Richard Miles said he had a full and frank exchange with his Chinese counterpart in Singapore. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development says despite global efforts to curb plastic use, Sub-Saharan Africa is predicted to see a six-fold increase by 2060. In South Africa, one man is trying to make a difference by creating jobs and transforming plastic waste into outdoor furniture and playgrounds. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. It may look like timber, but the long chocolate brown planks used to construct a dining set are made of recycled plastic. Hudson Depofa started his business building with these planks at his home in the township of Katlahong after he lost his job during the coronavirus pandemic. He says it's created employment for himself and two other staff and contributes to environmental protection. It is safe to to, to do the recycling so that we can save our environment because the, the animals, they won't die from those plastics and everything. Our attempts, they won't be dirty. So I think that's the way to save our, our community. The 34-year-old now gets regular orders for outdoor furniture and playgrounds. South Africa is one of the world's top countries for recycling plastic, capturing about 45% of its plastic waste. At the Tuflex Plastic Products Recycling Plant in Johannesburg, durable and sustainable faux timber is being made with plastics that are too low in quality to be reused for packaging or other materials. Recyclers say it's extending the lifespan of plastic used in everyday life. Charles Muller is with Tuflix Plastic Products. When you wake up in the morning, you will touch or interact with plastic more than 100 times before you get into the office. And that's from turning on the light switch to your toothpaste. The problem we have with plastic is it's visible and it pollutes. Not plastic pollutes, people pollute. The economic incentive for recycling plastic has given rise to an informal waste-picking industry. People gather and separate materials to sell to recyclers, providing them with income. But the informality of the business means waste pickers don't have access to all neighborhoods or industrial areas, so the material ends up as litter or in landfills. Luyanda Hrachleo reclaims waste. Because South Africa is such a disposing country, there's plastic everywhere for us to collect. There's no proper structures that fight against the redirecting of plastic from going to the environment. Globally, 460 million metric tons of plastic are used annually, half of which is for packaging. That's set to triple by 2060, with a six-fold increase in sub-Saharan Africa, according to a new report by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. This is Science in a Minute. In what sounds like an interesting science fiction plot line, two teams of astronomers are saying that they've spotted what might be a solitary, free-floating, or wandering black hole drifting through interstellar space. One of the teams is led by the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, and the other by the University of California, Berkeley. The object is located about 5,000 light-years away in the Carina Sagittarius spiral arm of the Milky Way. 
The Berkeley team estimates that the black hole has a mass between 1.6 and 4.4 times that of our sun, while the STSI team says it's more like seven solar masses. The teams claim that their discovery provides the first direct evidence of a wandering or free-floating black hole. Both teams use data gathered by NASA's Hubble Space Telescope to reach their findings. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you'll find all your favorite video, radio, and TV programs, and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Gina Ruffo in Washington. Have a great day. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Palestinians in Gaza face harsh living and economic conditions under Hamas, even as the terrorist group has amassed hundreds of millions in a secret investment portfolio. Hamas maintains a violent agenda that harms both Israelis and Palestinians. The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and holding it to account for its role in promoting and conducting terrorist acts. That's why the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, designated a Hamas finance official as well as an expansive network of three Hamas financial facilitators and six companies that have generated revenue for the terrorist group through the management of an international investment portfolio. The individuals and companies listed below are being designated under Executive Order 13224 as amended, which targets terrorists, leaders, and officials of terrorist groups, and those providing support to terrorists or acts of terrorism.
Ahmed Sharif Abdallah Ode was in charge of Hamas's international investment portfolio until 2017 and subsequently oversaw the investment portfolio on behalf of Hamas's Shura Council. In mid-2017, Usama Ali was appointed as head of the investment office, a position from which he coordinated financial transfers to Hamas. Hisham Yunus Yahia Kafisha served as Usama Ali's deputy and played an important role in transferring funds on behalf of various companies linked to Hamas's investment portfolio. Anda Company, Aggregate Holding, Trend GYO, and Al-Rawad Real Estate Development are all linked directly or indirectly to Hamas. Moreover, Sidar Company and Itkan Real Estate JSC both appeared to operate as legitimate businesses, but in practice were controlled by Hamas and transferred money to the group. And finally, Abdullah Yusuf Faisal Sabri is an accountant who has worked in the Hamas Finance Ministry for several years. These designations target the individuals and companies that Hamas uses to conceal and launder funds, said Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, Elizabeth Rosenberg. The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and to holding Hamas accountable for its role in promoting and carrying out violence in the region. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 